powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to friends, foes, and neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings because what you're about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for pop culture, commentary, and interviews featuring no drama and no controversy guaranteed. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Productions Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hi, everybody. Hey, thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Please sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. That's right. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. Before we get into the episode, I want to say thanks again to my last guest, Daniela Park. I was absolutely overwhelmed with the response from not only my friends and family, but also Duval Nation as a whole. As many reached out to me, not only to just, you know, congratulate me on my sobriety milestone, which thank you again, but also to tell their story of battling substance addiction. Needless to say, it was a very emotional last few days, and I want to thank not only Daniela, but also my listeners for being so brave for sharing their story. So welcome to episode 87, and we've got a really great episode lined up for you as we welcome acclaimed popular author, Jessica Brody, to the show. Jessica and I discuss how she got into writing, her process for crafting her novels, and we discuss the legacy of her work. I highly encourage you to seek out her bibliography when you are done with this episode. So let's just go ahead and get her on out here. Do all nation, please rise to your feet and welcome all the way from Portland, Oregon, acclaimed author, Jessica Brody. Jessica, hello. Welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. How's the weather been out by you today? Hi, Derek. Um, <laughs> it's actually pretty nice. Nice. So I start my interviews off with the same question. That is, how has it been for you to navigate the COVID-19 pandemic? Oh, you know, it's funny. I um, I might be one of the few people that actually like to stay inside and not see people. Um, so it was kind of at first, I think it was sort of a welcome, like, oh, I don't have to travel. I don't have to, you know, do all these things. I'm very much an introvert. But um, after, you know, a while, it got old. And then I started to miss my life on the road. So a little of this, a little of that. Fair enough. So every journey has a beginning. Where are you born? And what was it like growing up there? I was born in Los Angeles, actually. I'm one of the few people that can call myself an LA native. And if you, if I tell people that in LA, they don't believe me. Um, <laughs> most people are transplants. And I, I mean, I don't know. It's you, you know what you know, and you're familiar with what you're familiar with. Um, but I guess after we moved from LA, we moved to Colorado, we moved to a very small town. And that's when I actually had the perspective to be like, oh, <laughs> I did not have a normal childhood <laughs> growing up, you know, in Los Angeles. I didn't have, you know, a typical childhood, I guess. But, uh, yeah, that's where I started. So then at what age did you decide to start writing for fun? You know, I was seven years old when I first caught the writing bug. And I didn't, you know, really even know what a writing bug was. But I um, I remember I turned in a writing assignment at school that was four pages long. And the assignment was for to write a paragraph. And I remember my teacher made a really big deal about it. And I just thought, well... I don't understand. I, that, that was really easy for me. Why is she making such a big deal? And I think it was the first time I noticed that I was good at something. 
um, and that it came easily to me, which a lot of things didn't. You know, I was a very bad reader. I would, I would say I was a slow reader. I wouldn't say I was a bad reader. Um, I wasn't very good at sports. And so when this, you know, when this was was brought to my attention, I, I think I just gravitated toward it from from then on. I just couldn't stop writing after that. Do you have any favorite memories from Smith College? Oh, um, oh there's so many. <laughs> Favorite memories. Well, I will say my favorite memory is right before I went to Smith College when I was, there was like a local Colorado chapter meeting of Smith alums. And it was before, I think it was like welcoming all the new students that were going to come the next year. I think it was over the summer. And I went and I just remember being in this woman's living room and just feeling like I had found my people. I remember them all sharing their experiences about Smith and talking about you know what it's like to go to an all-women's college and I just kind of basked in it and I was like oh I made the right choice I already know I belong there and I'm not even there and so maybe that was one of my fonder memories of just feeling that welcome before I even arrived that's awesome um I will ask this because I did look at like I said I I did some research read my bio and what have you (laughs) what do you love about French and Japanese language Oh gosh, you know, I really need to take that Japanese off of my bio because I, I forgot all of my Japanese. Um, I studied it in college, and then people come up to me and they're like, "Study Japanese, say something." And I, I, all I can say in Japanese is that I forgot how to speak Japanese. Um, <laughs> but French, I still speak French, and I don't know. I think I love, I love finding the. I guess the overlaps between French and English and Spanish and just that those Latin roots are really fascinating to me. So when I stumble upon a, an English word that I didn't know, but I knew the French word, I will be like, Oh, like that French word. And I think that's just, I don't know. That's really fascinating to me. The, the etymology of words. You know, it's funny. Um, I kind of have experience with both uh, languages. Well, so when I was in the Navy, I actually got to spend seven days in Southern Japan and yeah. I got a you basically a crash course in how to speak Japanese because yeah. they were they were not very uh, English speaking where we were at. They knew enough mm-hmm. to get by, but I had to really kind of immerse myself in the culture. And within a within a week, I was speaking not full sentences, but enough to get by. You know what I mean? Wow. Yeah. And then the other part also is um, I proposed to my wife in Paris, and <laughs> my my wife, my fiance, well before she was my fiance had to immerse herself because we didn't have Google Translate or any of that stuff right. that, you know, that comes so easy to us now. And uh, we had enough to get by to make it through um, the, our French, ex- our Paris experience. But at one point I was convinced that the French people were serving us dishwater instead of champagne. <laughs> I, I, they're like silly Americans. So I, I, I was, a, I was a firm, I believe that. So, but no, Fr- French is a beautiful language. The Japanese people, their language is incredibly interesting but uh, yeah, that very well done on on uh, on retaining what you can. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so that being said, how did you end up working at MGM? You know, I let's see, how did I end up at MGM? I started out as a business consultant. Uh, I graduated with a degree in, in economics, and I was convinced that I needed a you know a job that came with dental insurance. And uh, I basically became a, a business consultant. I didn't love it, 
it wasn't really the right fit for me. And I was looking for something that would allow me to be a little bit more creative, but still use my my econ skills. And I there was a job opening at MGM for a financial analyst. It was actually a business analyst, I think was the official title, strategic analyst, something like that. But anyway, it was, you know, it's like, oh, I get to work with movies and and uh and I got to um, you know, work with green lighting some of the direct-to-video movies back when there was video um, and DVDs. And so I got to kind of use my creative skills and use my, or my creative passion, but also use my econ skills. And I applied for the job and I got it. And it was really great. Well, some of the, some of the best years of my life was working there. That's awesome. Now I've read the story, but I'd like you to tell it. What was your inspiration to start writing professionally? Um. Well, so I got, I was writing on the side when I was working at MGM. I actually started a novel that will never see the light of day um, called Just Juliet. And it was like a, it was supposed to be like a Bridget Jones's diary, but in Los Angeles. And um, it was about a 20 something girl who moves to LA and becomes a business consultant (laughs) and doesn't like it. And it was very autobiographical, Um, but it was, (laughs) it was just something I really enjoyed working on. And I w- but I was writing kind of on the side and I was loving it so much. It was sort of reminding me of the days back in second grade when I fell in love with writing. And I started to think, oh, this would be such a cool thing to do full time, like for real. But I guess there was this hesitation, you know, like, well, how am I going to pay the bills? And I can't just quit my job and I don't have enough money to, you know, take off and just write a book. And then about a year later, my I was working on a different novel and MGM got bought out by Sony and I got laid off uh, with a very generous severance package. And I felt like it was the universe going, okay, you need money, here's some money. Now go write the book that you are convinced that you can write. So I, I took it as a challenge and I took, a, I gave myself a year, which was pretty, I think pretty much what the severance was. And I said, okay, you have to make this work in a year. Otherwise you gotta get another job. And I finished the book and I sold the book and I have been writing professionally ever since. So it, it, it worked out. I needed that little push from the universe, I think. Okay, Devon Nation, we're going to go ahead and take a small break right now. But we'll be right back with the conclusion of this amazing interview with Jessica Brody. Now, may I suggest you take this time to refresh that cup of coffee, take some super nice, long, deep breaths, you know, Cluzo style. Pay attention to two friends of this show, and we will be right back. Are you tired of watching your beloved characters being tortured by careless authors? Are you sick of feeling like they could have swapped out all of the painful action and the plot would remain untouched? Subscribe to Books That Burn, the fortnightly book review podcast focusing on fictional depictions of trauma. We assume that the characters' reactions are reasonable and focus on how badly or well they were served by their authors. Join us for our minor character spotlights, main character discussions, and favorite non-traumatic things in the dark books we love. Find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bobby, my stomach hurts. Oh, I'll give you some of Dad's medicine. It's real strong stuff. That is a prescription for danger. Doc! Never take medicine without a grown-up present. You could do more harm than good. What should we do? If you can, wait for your parents. Or if it's serious, ask a neighbor for help. 
Hey, Mom's home. Now you'll get help. And now we know what to do next time. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe! Teachers, do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things? Do you want Kleenex for your classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts! Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy. It is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on Warriors. We've got this. Hi, my name is Michelle Fabre, and you can listen to my latest single, Kick It Up, on Spotify, Apple Music, and all other streaming platforms. I never had a feeling like this before. Let me in. Hey, baby, I'm coming to your door. And even though you're miles away, I can't wait. I'm gonna see you today. I'm Nikki. And I'm Tyler. And we are page turners and button mashers. Do you guys love books, games, or even both? Well, we have the podcast for you. I come in with a book of the week, sometimes a series of books, and give you the tip to tail of the book and base on how many pages turned it was worth. Then I follow up with a game of the week and give you the ins and outs of what to expect, how many awards, and of course, how much I loved it. So if you love books, if you love games, and if you love witty openings, then you should totally tune into Page Turners and Button Mashers. Janae Sergio, arriving. Hello everyone, this is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, a veteran's journey from homeless to hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 87 of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with acclaimed author, Jessica Brody. So how hard was the struggle getting that first book created and published? Well, it wasn't the first book I tried to get published. So the first book was actually that one, you know, I'm telling you about that, that autobiographical one. Um, <laughs> that one didn't get, that one didn't sell. Um, I was trying to get an agent for that one. didn't didn't work out. And then the second one um, that I was working on while I was working at MGM and then after the, I got laid off was um, 
I had gotten a lot of rejection letters. And this was kind of the one that made me take notice of what was missing from the story, what story was. Like, this is the one that kind of introduced me to structure because I was getting a lot of rejection letters about the structure. And I didn't really quite know what to do with that. Um, and that's kind of how I got introduced to the Save the Cat method through a screenwriter friend who was trying to help me out with my structure issues. Um, and I had, to, I had to rewrite that book several times. But there was this one agent who really liked the writing. And she asked me to, I basically said, can I send it to you when I rewrite it? Because um, she knew it wasn't, it wasn't in the right place yet. And she said yes. And I sent her, I think, about 100 pages and said, How, is this more in the direction of what you're thinking? And she liked it and she ended up signing me on those 100 pages and then helped me finish the book and we sold the book to uh, St. Martin's Press. But it was a long, I mean, if you count the, the years I spent writing the other book plus this book, it was probably a five-year process before I actually got published. You've created something close to 20 novels, which means you're obviously mm -hmm. pretty good at it. What is your process for writing? Well, it's changed a lot over the years, but, but now it's, it's pretty solidified. I start with the concept, an idea. It's usually an idea before it's a character. I know a lot of people get the character first and then they build the story around it. For me, ideas come in premises. And then I start to brainstorm what's the best character to put in this story? Like, I know the story I want to tell. Now, who's going to be changed the most by this, by this story? And who needs to be changed the most by this story? And that helps me create the character that will be put in the story. And then from there, I start brainstorming, who is this character? What do they want? What are their problems? What do they need? And then I start to put them in the plot, and I start to build what's called a beat sheet, um, which is, you know, I learned this from the Save the Cat method, which is, you know, write 15, all stories are, are revolve around the same 15 beats. So I try to figure out what those 15 beats are. Um, and that kind of serves as my outline. And then something I've been doing more recently, which I really love and has just streamlined my process a lot, is I go from beat sheet to full synopsis. And my synopses are very detailed. So I will basically write anywhere between 30 and 100 pages. And it's just a synopsis of what I think the story is going to be. And the process of writing the synopsis almost serves like a first draft to me because I can work out a lot of the plot flaws and the, the things that aren't working the way that I thought they would. It, a lot of those come out in the synopsis writing. So instead of them happening during the first draft, they happen during the synopsis. And then synopses are much quicker to fix, go back and plant things and tweak things and revise things as you're writing than first drafts are. So I go through that whole process with a synopsis, which takes me about you know, anywhere between two and four weeks. And then I have this like working document that I can write the draft from. And then the draft happens very quickly after that. So I can write a first draft. If I have a solid synopsis, I can write a first draft in like a month or a month to two months. So that's, that's how my process is working right now. You never know when it's going to change again, but I'm liking the way it's working now. So I have this one question. I've been kind of I've been brainstorming how to ask this the last couple of days. And I've, I've finally come up with a point. Let's okay. say your career was over today. You, you said, mm -hmm. I'm done. No more writing books. <laughs> In your entire bibliography, what would you consider to be your seventh symphony? Oh, it's so hard. I'm so proud of so many books for different reasons. There's so many books that were problem children from the beginning, and I wrestled them into submission and those always end up feeling having a different feel than the ones that came a little easier. Um, 
you know, I wrote this trilogy, uh, the System Divine trilogy with my best friend, Joanne Rendell. It was a sci-fi reimagining of Victor Hugo's Les Miserables set in a dis- on a distant planet. And we had so much fun with that one. And the second book gave us so much trouble. And then the third book, when we got to bring everything together and kind of t- take our characters to where we thought that their story ended and send them off and just like pulling it all back together and, and putting like a, a a period on the end of this sentence and the end of this world was so rewarding. And I think that third book is my favorite of the series. And it, it's also was probably the most emotional and the most fun to write. So I guess I would say that one. It's called Suns Will Rise. And it's the third book in our trilogy. Nice. I, I like that. That was waiting for the answer. You got to the, you got to a very good conclusion there, right? Well done. So. <laughs> so I am reading that you have projects that are being potentially adapted for film. Yes, I can't talk too much about it, but a lot of uh, several of my books have been optioned by producers. Some are they're trying to do TV shows, some movies, some I don't even know what they're doing. <laughs> I get I get varying amounts of updates depending on the project. So there's unfortunately there's not a lot I can share, but yes, it's exciting. <laughs> Can, can you tell us which ones at least or um i can tell you some of them but some they have not even announced and i don't know when or if they will announce so 52 reasons to hate my father which is a a contemporary comedy young adult comedy i wrote many years ago is in development and i think that's the only one i'm allowed to talk about actually yeah i don't want to get in trouble so that I one <laughs> okay. I, I don't want to throw any wrenches in anybody's wheels so don't worry okay, <laughs> okay. so all the time you've been doing this now, and I'm sure you've made many connections, what's the best advice that anyone has ever given you? I don't know if anyone specifically gave this to me, but it's something that I've learned over 20 books, and it has been so invaluable to me, which is that when the book is done, you have to let it go. I mean, I have a lot of things I've learned over the years, but that one has been the hardest for me because you finish this book and you want so much for it, and you want you, you want it to do well and you want people to like it and you want it to sell and all of that. And there's certain things you can control about that, what happens with that. And there's a lot that you cannot, like you can't control whether the publisher makes it a lead title. You can't control whether reviewers are going to like it. Like all you can do is write the best book that you can. And that's where you have the most control. And as someone who struggles with control and letting go of it, that has been a really powerful lesson for me is that do the things you can, write the best book you can, and then let it go and let it be what it's meant to be. And if it was meant to be a success, great. If people were meant to like it, great. If there's people who don't like it, that's fine too, um, because those things are so out of out of my control. So I would say that's my most valuable lesson that I would impart on on others writers setting off on this on this journey. I don't know. That was actually going to be a question that comes up later, but I will say this. Based on what you were saying, a piece of advice that I've always been given, uh, it was actually, I kind of copied it off someone else. George Lucas, who's a famous film director, said, uh, great projects are never finished. They're just abandoned. I've had to learn when I do this show and what have you, like I'll sit here for hours and nitpick it and, well, I could do this better, I could do this better. But when you have deadlines, it's like, it's best it's going to ever be, put it out there and you're just going to have to lose, except that you've lost control of it now and go from there. Trust me, I get it. So, yeah. Yeah, it's like perfection is the enemy of done. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And and I, I very much good line. With that. Yeah. <laughs> 
So uh, that being said, you were saying earlier, you know, what advice would you give to young authors who are out there chasing their dream of writing professionally? Yeah, well, there's that. Um, but the advice I give most people, especially ones starting out, is that you have to be able to write badly to write well. And that's something that most people, I don't think, know or don't don't learn. You know, they they learn how to write well. They read books, they take classes, and and everybody wants to be a good writer. <laughs> that's what we want. But there is a there is a part of writing, and I will say there's a part of finishing that requires you to write badly. It requires you to turn off your inner critic and just get through the story. It requires you to put crappy words on the page just so you have something to revise later. And it is so hard to do to let yourself be not even just imperfect, but bad. And there are, there are so many books on my shelf that never would have gotten on the shelf if I hadn't written that really terrible first draft, because that terrible first draft is a process and it's a discovery. And you discover things about your characters and your story and your plot that you never would have expected. And you discover what you like about it, what you don't like about it, what you want to change. But none of that can happen as soon as you stop writing. So you have to keep writing, even if it's terrible. So I tell people, don't be afraid to write crap because crap makes great fertilizer. <laughs> I like that. That's a, that should be on a bumper sticker. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I will make a bumper sticker. <laughs> so as we begin to wind this down, I'd like to throw in a few fun questions at the end. What sort of shows or music are you into right now? Oh, gosh. Shows and music. Well, I'm I'm a huge Taylor Swift fan, so that's pretty much always playing some at some point in the day. But my husband is not a Taylor Swift fan, so I have to listen to her with headphones. Um, <laughs> uh, TV. I've been in like a little bit of a TV rut lately. Like I had some good shows, and then I I can't really get into anything lately. But I will say the last really great show I watched was Ted Lasso. We we finished the second season and. I've been having just serious TV hangover ever since. Like it's such a great, unique show. And it was so nice to have a show that felt, I felt good after watching it. Like I felt yeah. good about the world after watching it. And that just doesn't happen every day. Uh, are you a Roy Kent fan? I am. I love Roy Kent. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody my loves husband, Roy Kent. My husband does a great impression of him, which is really just the one word where he goes, now. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So um, I would, before we get down to the closing, there is one thing I must ask you. We're big dog lovers. What kind of dogs do you have? Oh, um, well, then I want to hear about your dogs too. Um, <laughs> we have a golden retriever. Uh, we have a great Pyrenees. Oh, who wow. actually just had a little surgery. She had to oh. be removed from her neck. She's fine, but she's not happy about this. You know, we had to put like a little band around her neck so she wouldn't scratch it. She's not happy about that. Um, and we have a little chihuahua who is, you know, rules the roost. Ah, nice. Yeah. So what's next for Jessica? Wow. I am, so I just turned in the next book in the Save the Cat series. So I wrote a book called Save the Cat Writes Novel. And I just turned in the second draft of Save the Cat Writes Young Adult Novel, which is uh, applying the Save the Cat methodology specifically to young adult novels for teens. Um, well, the book is for adults, but for adults writing for teens. Um, so I am now in this really cool place where I'm getting to play with new ideas. I don't have any novels under contract on right now, um, which has not happened in, I would say, 10 years. So it's been really cool. I've just 
kind of playing with new ideas. I have two that I'm sort of uh, juggling and thinking about, and it's it's just really nice to have a some creative space to play around without a deadline looming. What would be the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online? JessicaBrody.com is my website. If you're a writer, check out writingmastery.com. That is my online writing school. We also have a free, some free resources there, blog, blog, writing blog, um, some free downloads you can check out. And um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Jessica Brody. Outstanding. All right. So as we come to the end, I end my interviews with my favorite question. And the question is this. If the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would want to say to the people of Earth? Be nice to each other. <laughs> That's kind of all we have left now. Just be nice. It's simple simple, and to the point. I like it. So, All right, Jessica, thanks for taking the time to come on today. This has been an absolute delight. I wish you nothing but continued success for your career. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me on. And just like that, Duval Nation, we come to the end of episode 87. I want to thank the incredible Jessica Brody for taking the time to speak with me. What an absolutely amazing writer. And like I mentioned at the end of the interview, we wish her nothing but the continued best success. So a lot of my listeners have written me on Twitter and asked about my opinions on the loss of Queen Elizabeth II. I meant to address it in the last episode, but time did not allow. So... Here we go. Mrs. Duvall and I had landed in Heathrow Airport. On the way to see friends in Nottingham, we learned the Queen had become ill. An hour after we got to Nottingham, Her Majesty passed away. Definitely a crazy coincidence. Of the Queen herself, I say only this. For the incredible time of her reign, we will never see another monarch so staunch in her duty, her love of her subjects, and all the amazing work that she did. I hope she finds some peace, which she has no question earned. And I hope Charles II can carry the torch, but I really, personally, (laughs) I don't see the monarchy lasting much longer. All right, so housekeeping before we close out. Have you had a chance to check out our store on TeePublic? We have everything from magnets, stickers, and mugs, plus we have a carefully curated collection of t-shirts put together by myself and Mrs. Duvall. Be sure to go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. Look on the banner on the left that says Merch. Click that, and you'll be taken to our store on TeePublic and as I always say, I want to thank TeePublic for being such great partners with The Derek Duvall Show. September is Suicide Prevention Month. As someone who has struggled with mental health in the past, I encourage everyone who might be going through a significant mental health crisis to reach out to a family member, a friend, a trusted doctor, or if it's your thing, a religious leader, and have them help you get the immediate attention and help that you require. You can also contact the 988 Suicide and Crisis Hotline. But please remember, guys... Suicide is a permanent solution to a very temporary problem. On behalf of the entire team here at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, be nice for a change. I have seen so much ugliness this last week that I think if everyone forgot their personal animosity to each other just for one day, the world would be a bright spot if only for a fleeting moment. Nostar, God bless, and see you next time, Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duval Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvalShow.com, to explore past episodes and find links to purchase merchandise. Please subscribe to our social media channels on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Derek Duval Show.